This podcast was made on Aboriginal land, the land of the Gadigal people. Wax Lyrical pays deepest respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I managed to get myself away from the crowds and I, I opened up the middle bedroom, closed the door and went up and stood in front of my father's corpse. Now, I had no, no, there was no revelation, there was no angels came down and said to me, Peter, you'll be fine. None of that happened. But I just needed to be standing next to his body. And it was incredibly peaceful. I wasn't scared looking at him. Oh, it just was, it was, it was actually really, really peaceful. Hello and welcome to Wax Lyrical, where we encourage odd stories and endorse strange sounds. In this episode, I talk to storyteller extraordinaire, Algie's little brother. Algie, Algie's little brother's older brother, got the name in school. He was good at algebra, Algie, and his name was Paul Power, Paul to the power of, Algie. And so he was named. And so Algie's little brother, being the younger and smaller brother, was also named. Absolutely no relation to my own name, Algal Blooms, even though Algie's little brother happens to be my uncle. This episode, we talk about dying and life after the death of a loved one. This story has particular relevance to me too because the death explored is that of my grandfather. And in the way that children purchase their complex complexes from parents wholesale, this event left a mark on my family that shaped, shook and permeated our lives across generations. I've wondered whether each of our personalities are just coagulations of coping mechanisms. We also talk about travel in a strange land, and we talk about S-H-I-T. In Kochi last year, in the south of India, a French woman taught me a phrase her mum used to use. When her and the kids went on an adventure, she'd say, C'est parti, mon kiki, which means, here we go, but translates to, we're underway. My Little Willie. Bruce Coburn, he refers to humans as the insect life of paradise. <laughs> That's kind of weird, isn't it? And I might as well have said to them, while my porridge is dribbling down my face. I'll put that on and suddenly into fifth gear in the Aston Martin. Oh Peter, you're so sexy. Get in babe. Dribble, 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 dribble.
Me- memory is, I know we've had these conversations about eyewitnesses and, and recollections and memories and how dodgy they actually are yeah. because what we think we remember may not be actual fact unless you have a third party observing such as a video camera in a, in a still spot recording everything and then it is not edited in any way at all so it can't be cut spliced subjectivized unless you have that which of course you didn't then the memory is subjective because my memory of my dad dying is clear that i was the only one with him immediately with him colette was in the in the dining room mum was out hanging up washing and Paul, I think Paul had taken Louise somewhere. But Sue will tell you that she was with me there and observed it as well. Now, Sue is, is, is clear in her mind that she was there as I, as I am, that she wasn't. Now, I find that quite extraordinary for a start. So anything I talk to you about, I guess, is subject to saying, well, that's not how Sue recollects it. But from, from my memory, she was not there. So it was a hot, humid February afternoon. It was the end of the school holidays. I had just turned seven. My birthday was the 26th of January, and I think this was the fourth. It was one of those hot, lazy summer afternoons. My grandmother, mum's mother, lived next door in the other semi. We lived in 106 Frenchman's Road, she lived in 104 Frenchman's Road. And that was Nan Spees. She'd been a nurse in her early years. Randwick bells are ringing Must be Saturday I woke late in the middle of the day must be Saturday Put a blanket on the window And come on back to bed We got nowhere to be No place to go So come on back to bed We're gonna rise up soon Gonna rise up soon Cause ran big bells are ringing Through the empty rooms Bells are ringing high and wide For the bride and groom Gonna rise up soon 
So dad was sitting on his favorite rocking chair and I was on his lap. I don't remember what we were talking about or what we were doing, but I remember he used to play games with me when I was on his lap. And this is the, I mean, if you hear this, you, you, know, you may be very uncomfortable about it because you might be thinking, oh my God, how can he even talk about this? But this is what happened. And I'm fine with it. I was seven when it happened and I'll be 64 next week. So, you know, um, I was with him on his lap. We had been, I don't know, he'd been gig- wrestling with me or giggling with me or whatever. And then I thought he, he, <clears throat> he started playing dead. And this is the point where everyone goes, oh my God, please don't go there. <gasps> He's going to go there. Because what he was, what was actually happening was he was dying. He was having a heart attack. He'd had two heart attacks previously. He'd been admitted to hospital twice. And uh, this was the third one, the one that killed him. But of course, as a seven-year-old, I wasn't, didn't know what was going on. I didn't know the symptoms of heart attack, what I was witnessing. So I thought he was just playing. So what he was doing was dying. Things like his eyes were were twittering up and down and his eyelids were going up and down and I thought he was being silly to me. There was a point where something in my brain went, there's something not right here. He's not playing. Maybe it was because I was poking him in the face and he didn't respond. Maybe that would be that would something that would trigger an alarm, wouldn't it? You know, so you put your finger in even further and instead of him jumping off the lounge and going, don't do that to me, you know. So nothing happened, so I probably poked him a little. I think I kind of remember dude trying to poke him, either in the cheek or the eye, I can't remember. And he didn't respond in a way that you would imagine somebody would respond if you p- poked him in the eye. And I remember quite distinctly this primeval dread or fear or something, but it's probably just adrenaline, right? Rushing through my seven-year-old body and internal alarm bells just going off everywhere all at once just there was like a a a dread that overtook me and I leapt off my father's lap ran out to the backyard to my mother who was hanging out the washing and I remember she was actually standing up there hanging out the washing and I said to I said something to my mother I don't remember what it was but she dropped the washing came running in by that point Colette who was sitting at the dining room table and keep in mind there were eight of us in a three bedroom semi with one table for us to eat do our homework right it was the it was a bit like what i imagine a pakistani house would be like now you know now my turn off you get 
Mum came running in and I remember she she just looked and gasped. At that point there was there was chaos. Um, somebody must have raced in next door to get my grandmother. thing I remember is that my father was off the rocking chair on the ground and my grandmother who was an old woman by that stage was pounding his chest trying to give him some CPR or something. Then the time the timeline gets a bit messed up. He died. Time passed, could have been the same day, may have been the next day, I can't remember but my father's body was in the middle bedroom and he was in there and the house was full of people, relatives and friends and uncles and aunties and a priest, I think, at, uh, you know, what's the line that Sting says about priests fussing and flapping in priestly black like a murder of crows. Being a child, I remember there were just legs. There was like a forest of legs. Um, and conversation, jumping in, oh my God, you're boiling and weeping and crying and oh. And I do remember this bit very well and it may have been one of the reasons why I think I've been able to cope, cope with this so well or why I was able to move on with my life without feeling bitter or twisted or angry or blaming anything or anybody because I don't and didn't, shit happens. People die young, people die old, people have heart attacks. That I managed to get myself away from the crowds and I, I opened up the middle bedroom, closed the door and went up and stood in front of my father's corpse. Now, I had no, no, there was no revelation, there was no angels came down and said to me, Peter, you'll be fine. None of that happened. But I just needed to be standing next to his body. And it was incredibly peaceful. I wasn't scared looking at him. Oh, it just was, it was, it was actually really, really peaceful. And maybe it was my my brain needing to, uh, to comprehend what was going on. One minute I'm on, he's, I'm on his lap and I'm playing with him, and next minute I'm, there he is, passed away. But then someone had discovered that I was in there, and I remember hearing outside, oh my God, he's on the phone, quick, get, get, quick, oh my God, he's gone into the middle, get him out, get him out of there. And a concerned adult came in and took me by the hand and said, oh, oh Peter, Peter, took me away from him, closed the door, and that's the last I ever saw of him.
I look west along the red road of the frail sun to where it hovers between shelf of cloud and spiky trees, the receding shore. The world is full of seasons, of anguish, of laughter. And it comes to mind to write you this. Nothing is sure. Nothing is pure. And no matter who we think we are, everybody gets a chance to be nothing. Love's supposed to heal, but it. It breaks my heart to feel the pain in your voice. But you know, it's all going somewhere. And I would crush my heart and throw it in the street if I could pay for your choice. Under a loose board in the floor, and I blow across it, and I send it to you against those moments when the darkness blows under your door.
because when he had his funeral, Sue, Louise and I weren't even allowed to go to his funeral. So the whole of the school, which was St. Charles at Waverley, they all went. So all our school friends, all, the whole school went to my father's funeral at St. Mary Immaculate in Waverley. But the three of us were kept back at school with a skeleton cast of nuns keeping us occupied because they assumed we would be so traumatised. I just find that remarkable. That they kept us from it. it in, you know, I'm sure with the best intentions. I don't think it was an evil, an evil action. But how misguided their intentions were when in fact what we probably really needed was to be there to see the ceremony, to witness other people grieving his passing, to comprehend what was going on and just, you know, and to sort of farewell him. So that never happened. Which probably explains why Louise and I, for the next year, used to play really crazy games like coffins. <laughs> we had this lounge chair made up of different pillows. And seriously, we would play, yeah, let's play coffins, you get in. And so Louise would lie down on the lounge and I'd build a wall and a, and a, a roof over the top and she would lie there and pretend to be dead. Like, are you, are you dead? Yeah, I'm dead, I'm dead, okay. Uh, and then I'd walk away and leave her in there. And if she made any noises, then I'd jump on top of her and, you know, and she'd scream and then we'd, we'd swap the roles. And we'd, like, we'd, we'd play coffins as if it was just a normal thing to do. So I have no idea how really how it's affected my older brothers and sisters, really. I've never really sat down and had that conversation. You know, whether we're all fucked up because of that or not, you know, that's probably why I'm fucked up, but I don't know what their other excuses could be. Maybe they had bad boyfriends or girlfriends or ate too much fish when they were young or something, I don't know. And then having to get involved in this organisation called Legacy, which was there to help uh, families of war veterans who had either died in action or had died sometime later, but had been involved in the armed forces, armed forces in war. So suddenly we had to go to these legacy dentists. I think they must have been trained by the Gestapo. They were taken up into these buildings in Elizabeth Street in Sydney with this ancient 19th century look machinery with, you know, the, the angel of death in white come in, little boy, and, 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 and it was like Hitler Youth. They would have on Friday nights legacy house would have these events put on for children and we'd all dress in white, white t-shirts, white shorts, white sand shoes, white socks. They may or may, they may not have issued us a legacy t-shirt, so it may have been a white t-shirt with a little legacy logo on it. We'd all be marched into these drill halls where the legacy poem was recited, the legacy torch was lit. A poem was recited by the scoutmaster, wherever the person was, and it you know, finished off with, lest we forget. And we'd all go, lest we forget, lest we forget, lest we forget. And then we would then proceed to, to do gymnastics. And yeah, we'd all, you know, stretch and bend and star, stretch and star, stretch and over the vaulting horse. Oh, we'd all be involved in all these activities. And at the end of that, be given bottles of lukewarm milk water, uh, lukewarm milk, to drink. Thanks for that. As if I don't have enough milk in our lives already, right? Because that used to be our dessert. It used to be white bread with milk and sugar. Whee, what a treat. And then we'd 
get on the buses and go back home on Friday night and be back home again. And this was like we hated it. I remember I hated it. But they obviously thought they were trying to do the right thing to keep us involved and to realise that there were other kids who had also lost parents and keep them doing physical activities. I'm sure the intentions were all great, but we all hated it. We didn't want to have anything to do with that. We, I think we just all wanted to be together. I think, yeah. Clive James, who said, none of us get out of this alive. <laughs> I think that's a great line. <laughs> yeah, and as we, as we, as in Western society, becomes more, in inverted commas, advanced, as we move, tech, you know, as we become wealthier and we become more technologically sophisticated, that, that vital understanding that, that death is as integral and as important as birth we seem to be trying to cut that part of it off because it's almost like we're in a denial. Everything is about living longer, looking younger, etc., etc., <clears throat> and that's fine. But at the at the cost of saying, well, don't forget, at the end of this, there is still death, and there can't be life without death. For me, I don't know which one I'd prefer. Whether I just would like to be out swimming in Gordon's Bay, enjoying the blue gropers and the water against my skin and suddenly going, blowing a foofy valve and just passing away in the water. That'd be a pretty nice way to go. Or I would like the opportunity to, to be informed that my death is coming at a finite period and so I could then prepare myself and maybe attempt to prepare the people who are around me and my loved ones for that. I don't know, I have no idea which one. And I don't believe I'd be scared, but I don't know that either. Maybe when those, those final few sparks are being extinguished, you might go, hang on a minute, I'm not ready yet. But honestly, I feel now, at the age of well, 64 next week, that I've, I've had a pretty fantastic life. And if it was to be that I was to, be, to die this year, I'd, I'd like to think that I would be perfectly okay with that. In the meantime, we just have virtual reality helmets. So, sit in the nursing home, put on your little designer label, Maui Jim, virtual reality helmets, 
and while my porridge is dribbling down my face, I'll put that on and suddenly into fifth gear in the Aston Martin. Oh, Peter, you're so sexy. Get in, babe. Dribble, 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 dribble. Who cares? Yeah. 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 and Yeah. 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 It's probably old enough, uh, happened far enough in the past for me not to get into trouble with the police, but it was in 1974. <laughs> I was 18 and I travelled with my schoolmate, John, who I still see on a regular basis. In fact, I've just finished having a, a, a social media argument with him about the cause of the fires and transgenderism and other things. Like he's, he's, he's a major partner in a conservative law firm in Hong Kong now. You know, kids go to ask him and lives in that lifestyle and he's become a bit of a prick, but he's still, still a schoolmate, despite the fact he's a prick. But anyway, John was the one who encouraged me to travel overseas the first time. We'd, <clears throat> we'd done our HSC, took a year off. I think it was a gap year before they called them gap years. I was billed as labouring at the time and earned more money per hour than I've ever earned in my life. To this day, I've never earned as much money as I did when I was a builder's labourer in 1974 with height money, dust money, wet underfoot money, danger money. Seriously, height money, dust money, wet underfoot money. You get the paycheck at the end of the week or the fortnight. I was like, oh my God! Like, I was rich as an 18-year-old kid. Fit, strong, doing karate, a whole lot of money, and John goes, let's go travelling. So off we went, <clears throat> we um, got our passports. We traveled through from Ireland, hopped through Indonesia and up through Malaysia and into Thailand and traveling overland. Anyway, we're in Penang, which is unrecognizable now because where we were are all five-star hotels. But it was a little sleepy fisherman's village called Batu Feringi. And they were just literally fishermen's huts on the water, all thatched huts sleeping on the ground just eating fish heads and rice and chili or whatever it was they were eating, it was fantastic. We just thought it was such an adventure. And being, being Chinese, they, they smoked opium. So it was like, hey, opium, let's do this. Never had opium? No, I don't want to try Yeah, let's try opium, hey, fantastic. The fishermen brought in the opium pipes, charged us, whatever it was. They wanted to charge us. And we smoked opium. Loved it, it was fantastic. We're having this great time smoking this opium and then one of the fishermen came running and went police 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 get out get out get out we went what the heck get out get out, get out police police so we bolted literally bolted left our backpacks there and bolted up the hill up literally up penang hill which is a really really steep hill we're fit and young so we ran we're running up this hill and we can hear kind of dogs and guys yelling 
at us, the, the sound became quieter and more distant as we ran up the hill. We started up the other night, it mustn't have been for very long, we must have been smoking until quite late in the night because it didn't seem that, the night passed very quickly and I'm sure the opium had something to do with that but we sat up there all night on the hill giggling and laughing and thinking what a great adventure it was. And then dawn broke, we realised we had to go back down. We thought we better go down and get out of here, we've left our backpacks here and everything. So we went down into the village and uh, snuck into the village, got into the little hut where our backpacks were, put them on and just as we were about to leave there was a uniformed officer of the law there who then took us and said come with come with me we didn't have anything on us by the way so you know we didn't have any any marijuana or opium or anything on us but anyway he drove us to <clears throat> butterworth which was the the station he pointed south and he said that way is singapore that way is thailand took our passports and stamped in our passports the words suspected capital s hippie capital h in capital I transit capital T suspected hippie in transit S H I T and then hand the, our passports back to us and went you know get out ah oh my god we've got shit part of our passports oh god yeah, how the fuck are we get it oh my god which way are we gonna go they hang you in Singapore oh god almighty what the fuck Ah, oh my God, we've got shit part of our passports. Oh, fuck it, how the fuck are we going to, oh my God, which way are we going to go? S-H-I-T. We're fucked. So <clears throat> we decided we'd, we'd head north into Thailand we figured we had a better, better chance of escaping somehow. So we made, we made a decision to head north, jumped on the third class part of the train at the back which is full of all the, all the Thai bloody smugglers and dodgy dudes. Sat in the back with them, shouted rounds of Mekong whiskey with all the guys, started smoking cigarettes, playing cards and just got completely smashed with these guys. And somewhere in, a, in an undefined region in southern Thailand, we then made the decision to throw our passports out the window. We thought we, there's no way we can arrive in Thailand with suspected hippie in transit shit stamped in our passports. It must be better to arrive at the border without anything, surely. So we threw our passports out the window. We arrived. Oh, we've been robbed. We've been getting drunk with the ties. All of a sudden, must have robbed us. I think we threw out a couple of things, a Walkman or something, to suggest we were robbed. And we were allowed into Thailand. I can't remember. They issued us some kind of entry document. Said we had to report to the Australian Embassy in 24 hours or something. And we showed up at the Australian Embassy and told them our story. And the guy who must have heard these a million times before just looked at us and went like, "You dickheads." Like, you're going straight home, boys. Issued us with a, a passport that was valid for six months and said, right, off you go, get home. So we didn't. So we kept <laughs> travelling up through Thailand and up into, into Laos and used, used the six-month validity of the passport.
That's it. We'll be back in two weeks with more great stories. My name's Argo Blooms. See ya. <laughs> That's kind of weird, isn't it? Into fifth gear in the Aston Martin. <laughs> Oh, Peter, you're so sexy. Get in, babe. Ding, 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 ding. Dribble, 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 dribble.